Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's program, Paul Rickard will look into investing in August. Is the outlook positive? Should you be thinking about going long stocks or selling stocks in August? And then we have Anna Porter from a company called Suburbanite. And if you can't live where you want to live, if you can't buy a property where you want to live, you might want to think about something she calls rent vesting. And then Lloyd Edge of Oz Property Professionals is talking about mortgage stress. And if you've got mortgage stress, you want to hear what uh, Lloyd Edge has to say. But before that, let me have a look at some really important issues about investing going forward. With the market having a nice rebound, which is something which I've been kind of implying was on the cards, the big question is, is it ready, steady buy time for stocks? And I've come up with 11 reasons to believe that being a buyer either now or in the not too distant future makes a lot of sense. The first point I'd like to make is the US has gone into a technical recession and that shouldn't be a reason to want to buy stocks. But there's a general feeling from economists and people like Janet Yellen, who's the US Treasury Secretary, that this is going to be a mild recession. And some economists are even saying, we're not in a recession. So like statistically, it looks like a recession, but they're saying, how, how in the hell can you have a recession when an economy is creating 400,000 jobs a month? That's a good point. Now, after the 0.75% interest rate hike last week, and this is my second point, Jerome Powell, who's the Federal Reserve Chairman, actually made the point that maybe they've gone far enough with these big interest rate rises. Smaller ones could follow, and he may well even take a pause. And gee, the stock market really liked hearing that. The US uh, stock market and Wall Street players have also had, um, have been given as a consequence of Jerome Powell's comments the expectation that interest rates won't go as high as they were thinking, say, six months ago when they started trashing stocks. And that's the part of the reason why tech stocks have started to make a nice recovery. Not a full recovery, but a nice recovery. It's like the adjustment process. They thought interest rates were going to go a lot higher, therefore they sold tech stocks harder. Now it looks as though they're going to go less high, therefore they're going to buy those stocks and bring their, their share prices up. Tom Lee of Fundstrat Global Investors, this is my fourth point, he's called the US bear market over. He's a pretty good, um, there was always a bull, he's a pretty good call of the market and CNBC in particular respect what Tom has to say. Uh, he thinks the, the bottom was reached in the June quarter. I think a sell-off is still possible, but I agree with Tom that that June low is unlikely to be seen again for a number of the reasons which I'm actually talking about right, right now. Number five, US company reporting season has been better than expected. Uh, late last Friday, Shane Oliver from AMP looked at the, uh, the number of companies that reported. It was a very big chunk, and 73% of the companies that reported had exceeded expectations. That's another good sign to believe it's more a buy time than a sell time for stocks. Number six, US heavyweight companies, financial companies like Wells Fargo and JP Morgan are starting to get involved in stories saying, gee, these tech stocks are starting to look pretty interesting. Why? Well, they've been smashed. And they're also saying, basically leaving the message that the market is, was way over uh, reacting in a negative kind of way and therefore there's value in tech stocks. Uh, number seven, the US stock market index is up over 8% 
for the month, and the heavy tech uh, index, NASDAQ, is up 12%, which implies a lot of sellers are now becoming buyers. All right, number eight, our stock market is up 5.3% for the month and is only off 8.5% for the year so far, after at one point being down 16%. So you can see that progressively, in a trending kind of way, buyers are starting to outnumber sellers, even on our market as well. The local money market was expecting the cash rate at one stage to go as high as 4.5%. They now think it's going to be more likely to be 3%. And the CBA economics team have a number more like 2.6%. Shane Oliver A&P also thinks 2.6%. You can see what I'm saying. If it was 4%, the sell-off of tech stocks makes a lot more sense than it does if the cash rate only goes to 2.6%. Now, despite, this is number 10, despite uh, rising interest rates, 32 out of 32 economists surveyed by the AFR said Australia is not heading into recession. Another good reason to be more supportive of buying stocks rather than selling stocks. And believe it or not, uh, scary headlines such as house values tumble and they could drop as much as 30%. All these actually help the Reserve Bank not have to raise interest rates all the way up even to 2.5%. I think they'll make 2.5%, but they wouldn't necessarily have to make it this year. It might happen in March or April of next year, which is another good reason to buy stocks. Rising interest rates really hurt stock prices. Interest rates not rising as far will be good for stock prices. There are 11 reasons why I think it's more a buy zone time now rather than a sell time. But let me throw this one in. A lot of those points I made was uh, put in the Switzer Report on Monday. This is why people buy the Switzer Report. We give these insights well ahead of many other people out there who are looking at the market. But the important point I made in, on Monday's story was, if you're a thrill seeker, you buy on Monday. Or you probably bought three or four weeks ago when I was saying, it looks like the bottoming process is happening. The thrill seeker is prepared to take the risk of possibly losing because in the long term, they believe they're going to win. If you're a more cautious investor, I suggest you wait till August 10 in the USA. On August 10, the latest CPI number comes out. And if it's a, a big fall or a substantial fall, as some people are hoping because oil prices have come down, uh, Wal companies like Walmart now have an oversupply of products, so they're starting to cut prices. If that's a good inflation number, the market will take off again. If it's not a good number, there will be a sell-off that won't be a bad sell-off, and that could be a buying opportunity. Either way, waiting to August 10 might be a really sensible strategy. From my point of view, I'd rather buy a market when I know that the, the go-forward uh, outlook is going to be great, is going to be positive. Uh, the flip side is, because I do believe that the December quarter will be great for stocks, if there is a sell-off after August 10, I will be a buyer. That's my take on where stocks are going to go. Let's now cross to Paul Rickard and see what he th thinks is going to happen in August. Today we want to look at what's in store for August and in particular reporting season. That's a time when most companies pre present their either half year or full year profit results, a really important time for the market. But before moving on to August, a quick recap on what happened in July. Big rally in July, which saw the market had 5.7% in price terms, a little bit higher when you add in dividends, 5.8%. Still to be down about almost 7% in the ASX 200, 
uh, year to date. Interesting enough, we saw a sort of reversal of what happened in previous months and most of the action occurred in the sort of the smaller part of the market. In other words, the smaller companies went up more than the bigger companies. The ASX uh, 20 rise was only 4.6%. And you can see small caps, which is stocks ranked 101 to 300, added 11.4%. But look at the right-hand side and you see the year to date, if anything, it was just a big correction in the bear market. And I think that's one of the concerns about what happened in July, notwithstanding how positive it was. Also, we look up and look at the 11 industry sectors that make up the ASX 200. You can see again, it was almost a mirror reversal of what's been happening this year. The sectors have been hit the hardest, went up the most and vice versa. So uh, information technology, which is uh, had a pretty tough year, up 15.2% in the month of July, but still down 27.6% year to date. Also, a sector like uh, real estate bounced back up 12.1%, but still down 14%. Um, the bigger sector, uh, financials, with a weighting of about 29%, that's the second column, uh, up uh, almost 10%, pretty well flat for the year. So what we've seen on the sectors is pretty much a, a reversal and perhaps does suggest that maybe July was a bit more of just a correction in the downward trend. We're going to find out because I think August is really important for a number of reasons. It's most important because it's about reporting season. Ultimately, share prices are about how much money a company is making. I think there are three themes that are going to dominate the way people look at um, earnings seasons reports. The firstly is about the cost line. Now, we weren't talking about cost six or 12 months ago but suddenly that's really important for most companies. So what's the impact of rising prices in terms of input prices or the goods they're paying or the, the, what they're having to pay for their staff? What's the impact of cost doing to the profit? And what might it do going forward? So we're gonna, I think we're gonna see some companies talk about a big change in their cost base and that's gonna put a shadow over, over what comes up ahead. Secondly, like any reporting season, it's often not what's happened it's how companies look forward to the future. So the sort of outlook statements, in particular the confidence with which the company talks about uh, its prospects is gonna be really important. And then thirdly, a lot of focus this time on tech companies because a lot of the Australian tech companies, like their US counterparts, have, have had a really sh shellacking uh, in 2022. And the market's gonna wanna look at some of these beaten up companies and see a couple of things. He wants to see that those that are focused on growth are doing it within budget. In other words, they've got their costs tightly controlled and in particular, they're on top of their cash flow. They want to see positive cash flow. Um, companies get a license to grow, but if they're eking cash, they're going to stay out of favour. So tech companies in particular are going to come for particular scrutiny. As far as some of the big companies and what to look out for, CBA reports on Wednesday the 10th of August, probably the first major company, about $9.4 billion the expectation, and its report will give a real uh, lens over the whole banking sector, which of course is the biggest sector of the market. BHP on Tuesday the 16th of August, probably more so about the size of the BHP dividend, also whether there's any chance of any special dividend or other sort of return for shareholders. So the market's going to look at the BHP report with high expectation. And then sort of a litmus stock for the growth side. My, one of my favourite companies, CSL, is due to report on Wednesday the 17th of August. Now it's already provided guidance and CSL's got a great habit of reporting in, within its guidance range, normally on the upper end. So with a guidance range of 2.15 to 2.25 US billion dollars, 
the market will be wanting and hoping that CSL's towards the high end of that range. And then WiseTech, I guess, is probably now our most profitable tech company ever reports on Wednesday the 24th of August, about $180 million. Now, have a look at this. There's Super Thursday coming. That's Thursday the 25th of August when more than 15 ASX 200 companies report. So it's really much put back into the last week of August. That's when most companies are going to report. But when it starts really with uh, the CBA, gonna... we'll get a handle on it. And I think, as I said, people are worried about costs. Uh, they're going to be worried about, in particular, about the confidence with which the CEO uh, is talking about um, what's in store for the company. And if the CEO is confident, that's going to be good for share prices. Higher, better reporting is actually going to be good for the market. And we could see, if anything, what ha what's happened in July, not just being a correction, but if anything, a change of trend. Looking overseas in the USA, uh, their reporting season, what's called their Q2 reporting season, it's wrapping up. It'll basically be over by the second week of August. It's gone okay. It's gone up probably a little bit better than, than, than many feared, but it really hasn't shot the lights on, but the US market has rallied over the period. Again, share prices are fundamentally about how much profit a company is making, so that's why it's so important. The big number out in the States will be on the 10th of August. Uh, that's their time, and that's when we get their July CPI. This market's all been all about inflation. Um, the market is now starting to think that inflation has peaked. Uh, and if you look at the consensus forecast, we should see a slight reduction in the inflation rate coming out in July. If the market gets that, it's going to be more comfortable to start to say, yes, well, maybe the, the, the tightening has sort of gone about as far as it goes. But a bad inflation result, we get back into that whole question about the tightening cycle. And that'll come up again but the, with the US Fed. Not meeting in August, but it meets uh, not for a number of weeks till the 20th and 21st of September. And at the moment, the market is accepted the Fed is probably gone, not going to go too much further. It's going to be data dependent. But bad news on inflation uh, will, will, will mean that the rally in the US will start to look like a bear market rally. So I think by the sort of middle of the month, we get the US out of the way, we get a sense of what, an what the earnings season is doing in Australia. I think we'll get a good handle on whether what we saw in July is going to get its own momentum again in August. Well, at a time when there are a few challenges for the property market and a porter, the founder of Suburbanite, thinks that we should, or uh, well, many people who would love to get in the market and can find it you know, fairly hard, to think about a thing called rent vesting. Anna, great to see you. My pleasure. Now, tell us about rent vesting. What is it? It's where buyers will look at buying an investment property that's going to grow and perform well for them and then go and rent the place they want to live in. So instead of putting all your money into a really big, expensive family home and have the big, expensive mortgage that usually goes with it, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, you'll go and get a more affordable investment property and then rent exactly where you want to live. And at the same time, that often allows people when they're um, in different stages of life to make those changes. What we want in our 20s out of a home is different to our 30s and our 40s. So you can move around and have a bit more flexibility in that model. Now, you, you say that, okay, in principle, um, you're getting into the property market and, and clearly because you are um, buying an investment property, there will be tax advantages in doing that. I, we, we kind of get that. But you said that there's still challenges. What are those challenges? 
Yeah, so some of the challenges in the in the property market at the moment is certainly affordability is a huge challenge. Um, and anyone as well, when you're looking at a rent vesting strategy, you really do have to get your money working for you. So you've got to make sure that you're buying a property that will perform. There's no point in buying a property that if it doesn't perform and then you're also paying rent, you end up going backwards. Right. So that's certainly not a position anyone wants to be in. You've got to make sure you've got a good tenant so that you're not paying rent and having vacancy on your property. So you've got to make sure that that rent's coming in so that you're not paying doubles effectively a mortgage and the rent out of your own pocket yep. and getting um, the sort of property that suits your lifestyle as well you've you've got to be prepared that yes that's the upside getting a property that suits your lifestyle and having a bit more flexibility with moving from place to place the downside is moving from place to place you know not everyone wants to have um a revolving door of maybe moving more often than they like if the if the landlord decides they want to move you on um or as well as sometimes you can't have it feel like you're in home you know you not, not might not be able to do the reno or put the picture up where you want or make the changes you might do to your own home yeah and, and it's the price of building wealth isn't it that, that you have to put up with the fact that you might have to move on after a couple of years and all those sorts of things but you also say you might need a a 20 percent deposit of the purchase price to to, to make a start at rent vesting why 20 percent yeah, so most lenders would like to see people investing with a 20% deposit. Yeah. Um, so it's 20% of the value of the property plus stamp duty, which in some states can be a very hefty amount of money and the cost to purchase. Now, there are some lenders that will lend a higher, what's called LVR, so loan to value ratio. So they might let you do it with a 10% or 5% deposit. But there will be some hurt money for that, which is called lender's mortgage insurance. So once you go um, under that 20% cash position or take the equity out of a family member's home or something to that effect, um, you then will pay LMI. And that's money that goes off to the bank so they can insure the loan and you don't really get anything for it. It actually is money to protect the bank from you defaulting on the loan. If they take a higher risk position, they pass on that cost. Uh, um, what kind of time period should people be thinking about for this rent vesting play? So we like to think of it as about a three to five year strategy. In most states in Australia, getting in and out of real estate is very expensive. You'll have stamp duty implications, you'll have capital gains tax implications, potentially if it's an investment. There's a lot of costs in owning real estate and getting into real estate. And then if you sell, you've got agents fees as well. So if you're doing it in a very short period of time, unless you're a developer or manufacturing value through change of use or renovations, often those costs will absorb way too much of the potential upswing or profit. So in three to five years, you'll have enough time in the market to grow some, some really solid equity if you get it right, and that makes it worthwhile. Uh, you make the point in your notes that um, you should do your best to pay down the, the loan as much as possible to build up your equity. But a lot of people that play the landlord game um, have been advised to fix rates in the past, and particularly with interest rates rising. How would you deal with both those you know, acceptable goals? Yeah, so there is a lot of people out there that do an interest-only repayment strategy, which um, has some benefits around cash flow. So interest-only is going to be a cheaper structure. So if you're a bit tight on cash flow, that's one way to look at it. Um, and it gets you in at a more affordable price with your repayments. Paying off extra equity allows you to build your wealth quicker. So it really depends on what your goals are. But most people, 99% of people that come sit down at my table are saying, I want to build my wealth and my financial security. So the more equity you can have to do that, the quicker you can get there by paying down that mortgage. 
the, the better safety net you'll have. Yeah, tell us the benefits for people who don't understand. What's the benefits of actually building up equity you know, in your, your property by effectively reducing the loan? What does that give you a potential to do? Yeah, so the equity is basically the difference between the amount of the loan and the value of the property or what you can sell it for. So if you've got a million dollars in debt and you've got a $1.5 million valued property, your equity is the $500,000. The equity is when you go to sell that home or even if you don't sell it and you pull that equity out to do something with it, it allows you to use it for things like buying other investment properties or other homes to live in. If you sell it, it allows you to cash out and maybe upgrade and do that step up in the property market. So you take the money you've made through investing and put that into your family home and it reduces, you know, how much you have to have to get into the next property. Um, It allows some people to retire earlier, which is, you know, a fantastic position to be in. So that equity is really what you own, not what the bank owns. And it gives you that financial security to even invest in shares. We see a lot of people pull out equity and put it into the share market. So it just gives you more options and choice. Yeah. You also make the point to avoid off the plan and new. Tell us why. There is so much risk in off the plan investing. So when you buy off the plan, you're signing a contract today for something that will be built in 12 or 18 months or 24 months time. Some of those risks sit in that the market can change or your personal circumstances can change. So what happens then is the bank will reassess your financial position 90 days out from settlement. So you've committed today and in in 90 days out from when it's finished or settles, you might not be able to get that loan because something's shifted in the market or in your situation. And then you're going to lose your 10% deposit. There can be defects. You don't know what's being built. And even a good developer might get a bad tradie. They might get a bad waterproof or something goes wrong in that process and you end up with defects that you deal with. If it's a built product, you can you can see it, you can touch it, you get a building inspector through and you know what you're getting. Hmm. But the other big one right now is rising construction costs. So there's a lot of developers that are struggling to get their projects over the line. A lot of builders are, are running into financial strife. And some developers are going back to the negotiation table and even though a contract's signed, asking buyers to pay more money because if they don't, they can't build the project. So there's a lot of risk that's really out of your control and you just don't know what you're getting because it's not built yet. Yeah. You know, if, if you, anyone who's listened to you, the, the critical issue you've underlined is you've got to make sure you buy a property that has enormous potential for growth in value, right? How do people find it? They'd be saying, well, okay, thanks very much, Anna. How do I find properties that are going to have growth? Yeah, that is a really good question. So some of the fundamental things we want to look at, like people talk about infrastructure, right, which is great. We do look for infrastructure in or going into an area. But some infrastructure is better than others. You know, not all infrastructure is the same. Building a road may not create long-term employment. It could create employment for the construction and then people move on. So you're looking for whether it be infrastructure or, or initiatives that create employment, long-term employment, diverse employment, because employment and people earning strong incomes does help underpin and support the property market and can promote growth. But also you've got to look at supply and demand. If you go into an area, say off the plan unit, they, they might build hundreds of them in that same area around the mm. same time and they could be an oversupply in the market, which puts downward pressure on values. Look for an area that has a finite amount of stock, you know, an area that might have Um, mountains on one side and beach on the other and what's in between that is what's built and that's all there can be and that's when you're going to get more usually more demand than supply so you know sticking with capital cities satellite cities areas that have good employment they're going to be your safer bets than getting a bit speculative and you know chasing someone that might be land banking out the back of a regional town Mm. that can be quite speculative and it can be high risk can can as an indicator of 
the, the likelihood that tenants want to live in an area be the, the vacancy rates in those particular areas? Absolutely. Vacancy rates are a critical element to assess. If you don't know how to find, I mean, you can Google them, they're everywhere, but if you don't know how to find them or interpret them, pick up the phone and talk to some local property managers in the area looking at buying and ask the questions, how quickly a property is renting? How much demand is there? How much rent are you getting for properties? And what type of tenants are you getting? You know, some areas might, you might have a great supply of tenants, but they might graffiti your house on the weekend for fun. You don't want that. You want to know <laughs> what type of tenant you're going to get as well. Yeah. yeah, okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we sign off when it comes to rent vesting? Yeah, I think in this uh, changing economic time, which we have a lot of levers that are being pulled in the economy at the moment, uh, it is going to be more expensive for investors to get into the market just through the, the inflation and interest rate environment. So investors do need to start thinking outside of the square a bit. And if you've got a position you can take where tenants can help you pay for that property, look at that as an option if you're feeling a bit priced out of the market. Don't just delay it and get scared and not do anything. And yes, rent money is dead money, but so is interest going into an asset that's not going up in value. So if you get the strategy right, um, don't just panic because we're seeing interest rate rises. Get some advice. Talk to your accountant. Talk to your planner and still make really solid moves for your future. And I guess you'd say talk to me as well, being you. Absolutely. You'd be the first call I'd make. <laughs> okay. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Hannah. My pleasure. Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Well, on Tuesday, the Reserve Bank increased interest rates by another half percent, taking them to the, uh, the target cash rate to 1.85%. No surprises there, but the property market's not going to like it and probably means more pain for a lot of mortgage buyers. Joining me now to discuss the impacts on the property market in particular, uh, the areas he thinks still have some reasonable value is uh, Lloyd Edge. Lloyd is a property expert and founding and managing director of Australian Property Professionals. Lloyd, thanks for joining us on the show. Hi, Paul. The uh, fourth interest rate increase in four months, so we've now had uh, one and three quarter percent, maybe some more to come. Uh, what's that doing to the property market and wh how, what sort of action are you sort of seeing in terms of your clients and how they're responding to these uh, very, very sudden interest rate increases? Yeah, what I'm seeing at the moment is a definite slowdown. Right. Yeah, what I'm seeing at the moment is a definite slowdown in the, uh, the Sydney and the Melbourne markets, uh, which are probably going to continue to see maybe 15 to 20% price decline. There's, uh, there's much uh, reduced buyer interest and probably uh, auction clearance rates are really uh, you know, starting to drop at this stage. Um, we are seeing the regional markets still quite strong. Uh, and buyer interest, uh, rather than um, buying you know, your own home, I'm mm -hmm. seeing a, a shift from people wanting to buy their home to perhaps moving away and buying investment properties and just looking for some cash flow. And the cash flow is actually higher in a lot of the regional markets than what you can get in the, uh, into the capital cities, of course. Lloyd, so we're hearing you know, good increases or reports of strong increases in, in rents. So I guess, uh, and rental yields. So I guess that on the one hand, interest rates are making it tougher for investors, but they're getting rental growth. Is that your experience? Are investors still pretty active in the market? 
Yeah, absolutely, Paul. The uh, investors are very active, uh, certainly in, in certain markets, uh, particularly in the regional markets, looking at the, the lower price properties where there is still some growth. We're still seeing a bit of an effect from the pandemic where there's been uh, the sea change for people sort of moving away uh, into those regional markets and uh, and also just, uh, you know, investing there as well as uh, people, you know, wanting to move there to live. Uh, it's going to put more of a squeeze, though, for people mm -hmm. who are trying to rent property because with the interest rates increasing, there's going to be uh, probably less buyers out there trying to buy. They're going to stay in the um, you know the rental cycle for longer, uh, and that's going to put more of a squeeze. Uh, you know, there's there's already a, a shortage of supply in rental properties at the moment, and we're going to have a higher demand. So I see that the rental uh, prices are still going to continue to increase, which is good as an investor, but it doesn't really solve the problem for people who are, are trying to get into the market or are just trying to simply find uh, you know, a roof over their heads. So coming back to sort of just thinking about it from an investor's perspective, uh, so you advise a little bit of caution. I mean, how, how should investors approach the market at the moment? Are they just uh, can they afford to sort of be a little bit uh, yeah, less aggressive on the bid and perhaps wait for their bids to be hit. I mean, how are, how are sort of people, how are you working with buyers as they, uh, as they look at properties at the moment? Yeah, so one thing that's really important is that buyers uh, really need to look at buying under their borrowing capacity because as interest rates rise and we've seen four rises in a row and there's probably going to be more to come mm -hmm. uh, with interest rate rises your serviceability the ability to pay back the loan actually decreases so uh, buyers need to sort of build in that buffer and really be looking at properties a fair bit less than what they might have originally been approved for so that's one step um, as an investor uh, i'm really focusing on you know positively cash flow properties right. uh, uh, and, you know, a lot of people come to me, you know, they've, they've read my book, which is um, called Positively Geared, and mm -hmm. it's about getting uh, positive cash flow properties and mitigating against that risk. And, uh, you know, I think people that are going to hurt are those that are already negative geared with properties and the interest rates go up and then they're going to have more of, uh, you know, more out of pocket. So if people can really focus on getting higher cash flow, then with interest rate rises, then at worst, they might be left uh, neutrally geared, which is a much better position to be in. Okay, let's go to the areas that you like most at the moment. So uh, I'm an investor, I've got some money, I'm looking at a property, where should I, where should I be looking at the moment? Where's, give me some ideas about uh, the different markets you think have got the most potential. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm focusing a fair bit on uh, areas around um, Oluwodonga mm -hmm. on the New South Wales Victorian border. Uh, there's been some good growth there, still a very strong market and quite good cash flow there. Um, I also like um, Bundaberg in, uh, in Queensland there. Uh, and then there's um, the Barossa Valley, Mount Gambia in, uh, in South Australia. So focusing on areas that um, I think are still fairly undervalued, but also have good cash flow. So as an investor, you really need to, like I've mentioned, have that cash flow. And that's going to help you be able to move forward for uh, future investments as well, because you don't want to get stuck with just that one property or be maxed out or when the interest rates go up, you're, you're going to struggle. Because I always call it the, the sleep at night factor, yeah. uh, which is, uh, you know, make sure you're comfortable with what you've bought and that you can afford those repayments. So talk to me about Bundaberg. What are the drivers that are impacting, uh, you know, your, your very your positive assessment of that market? Yeah, well, they've got the uh, the new uh, the new hospital um, going up there, and there's the a lot of infrastructure going all around um, Bundaberg and also on the on the Fraser Coast, uh, which goes right out to 
Harvey Bay, um, and not just about sort of Bundaberg, but there's also uh, other areas such as uh, Toowoomba, which has got the uh, the 81 um, billion dollar rail link. Mm -hmm. um, inland rail that's going in there. Uh, and with the Olympics coming to, you know, Queensland in 2032, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot happening there and it's, it's a market to really consider investing in. Um, Brisbane obviously has a lot of potential there, but it's a market that you need to be careful of at the moment. It's probably going to be coming back a bit now after really booming last year. Uh, so if investors are chasing cash flow, uh, they probably want to stay away from most of the Brisbane suburbs, but some of those other uh, southeast Queensland areas, uh, you know, are definitely worth considering. You talked about sort of positive gearing. So what sort of gross yields would, uh, should an investor be, you know, in that sort of Bundaberg sort of part of parts of, uh, I won't say southeast Queensland, but in that part of the market, what, what sort of yields would, it, would gross yields would an investor typically be looking at there? Yeah, so we're, we're seeing um, gross yields of up to uh, about 5.5% wow. for single income properties. Um, I also focus a lot on dual income properties. So if you can find uh, like a duplex or maybe a house with a granny flat on it, then uh, you can be getting yields of you know 6.5 to 7%. So they're the sort of yields. Now they're quite um, few and far between. So it's not as if you can just go out and chase those sort of yields every day. Uh, but certainly the yeah, the yields are quite good in from our single income properties, uh, you know, of, of chasing up to that sort of five to five, five and a half percent. So when you consider the net effects, once you take in all your expenses, the rates and, and everything like that, you're still left with pretty good cash flow on the property. So that's why we sort of need to keep sort of a minimum of a, a fairly, uh, fairly positive uh, gross yield on that. And you mentioned Albury, Wodonga and also uh, the Barossa Valley. Is, is the Barossa Valley sort of lifestyle type uh, investors, people moving out of Adelaide? What's, what's driving uh, growth in the Barossa Valley? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening at the moment. Uh, people people have been moving out of there. Uh, it's like what's happening in a few of the other capitals that people have been moving out for, for lifestyle because people can now work from home uh, mm -hmm. and they, you know, they want to have a, a larger office, uh, whereas, you know, in the city they can maybe only we're living in an apartment so getting out to having a larger home somewhere nice to bring up their kids uh and that's what's really driving the barossa valley at the moment it's got fairly good yields uh down there but also with the price point there's still room to move uh because one of the things i like to look at is where we are in in price points so if, if the market's already overheated uh, quite often we've got sort of a one way to go when the market starts to slow down. But if we're in a fairly affordable market, there's more buyers that can afford at that price point. So uh, it makes sense that, uh, you know, things are going to be able to move forward there, um, as long as it doesn't get to, uh, you know, oversupply. So we have seen uh, cases in the past, uh, such as Ipswich in, in Queensland, where, uh, you know, too many investors went in there and it had the opposite effect because everyone thought they were going to go in there and, uh, you know, by will, but it actually went the other way. So it does come down to demand and supply. And, and if there's too much supply and, and not enough demand, then yeah, things can go the other way. Well, always some very interesting insights about uh, positive gearing and also uh, the three areas that, that you like in terms of Albury, Wodonga, parts of around that Bundaberg area, and also the Brossa. Um, thanks for joining us on Switzer. Great, thanks very much, Paul. That was Lloyd Edge, the Managing Director and Founder of Australian Property Professionals. And that's the show for tonight. Uh, thanks for joining us. Remember, we're back on Monday and I've got Mike Gable there looking at the charts.
the charts of individual companies and the overall stock market and we'll see whether Mike's becoming positive on investing in the stock market. I hope he adds to my ready, steady buy story.